Well, good morning. Please open your Bibles with me to John chapter 3. Decided to, uh, to pull back just a little bit, do a little bit of an overview of what we have seen thus far because it uh, might have raised some questions in your mind. And uh, I know as uh, I've read through it multiple times, many questions arise in my own mind. So I wanted to, to take this Sunday and do a little bit more of a, uh, a topical message on a larger portion of uh, Scripture, this, this entire conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Uh, verse uh, 1 in John chapter 3 all the way through verse uh, 15. Uh, so it'll be a little bit different than what we have uh, done in the past, but hopefully still uh, helpful and uh, fruitful. Uh, and as you're there, there in uh, John 3, uh, there's a, an occasion in 1974 where a, uh, a French street performer named Philippe Petit uh, carried out a far-fetched dream to walk uh, in between uh, the two towers of the World Trade Center. Uh, and on the morning of August 6, 1974, he and uh, uh, a group of people who had come together to, to help him in this endeavor... Uh, plotted and carried out this feat where they shot a cable from one tower to the other and then he proceeded to walk across uh, this tightrope uh, over to uh, from one tower to the other uh, and upon getting over there to the other side he felt the urge to go back uh, so he didn't just do it one time but he then returned and actually did a total of six times uh, in about 45 minutes of walking across this tightrope and uh, as you can imagine, that, that gathered a crowd uh, of seeing somebody uh, walking across uh, a tightrope that high up without any type of net. Uh, and over the course of 45 minutes, a crowd grew and television uh, cameras arrived and it, uh, it made the news. And uh, you and I won't be walking across a, a literal tightrope for the next 45 minutes, but uh, we will be walking down or across a theological tightrope, uh, something that uh, two truths that are in tension and we must uh, walk along uh, a very thin area, uh, one which requires a balance and wisdom if we are to walk across successfully. As I mentioned, this, our study of John chapter 3 has seen that this is a, a conversation between two men. Uh, and probably their disciples are there with them. But the two main characters are Nicodemus, who's a, a Pharisee, a member of the, the Jewish ruling party. He's a member of the, the Sanhedrin. Uh, he is one of the leaders, one of the teachers in Israel. And he comes at night to, to speak with Jesus, who at that point in time was this I guess young Jewish, you could call him a rabbi, because that's what Nicodemus calls him. This young Jewish teacher who is causing an uproar in Jerusalem. Because as, as you remember in John chapter 2, Jesus came into the temple and he overturned tables and he made a whip and he chased out the, the vendors who were selling doves and, and ox and sheep. He chased them out and then we see that he was performing miracles in the city and Nicodemus comes to him and says, Hey, we know that you are some type of teacher come from God because nobody can do the things that you're doing. You have to be from God. Nicodemus starts the conversation with that comment to Jesus, but then Jesus quickly, immediately turns the topic of discussion to what is most pressing. See, chapter 2 ended with uh, this claim that Jesus knows the human heart perfectly. He knows what is in man. And that's why he wasn't entrusting himself to the many crowds who were believing in his name as he's performing all of these miracles. He knows exactly what is in man, and Nicodemus comes to him, and he shifts the conversation to the kingdom of God, and specifically what it takes to enter into the kingdom of God. And Jesus would know this because Jesus is the king of that kingdom. He is God's chosen king to rule and reign over his people, uh, and to rule and reign over the earth when the time comes. And John chapter 1, John the Baptist heralded Jesus as this coming king, as the Messiah. John the Baptist says, hey, look, Israel, your king has arrived. And then John chapter 2, 
Jesus is beginning to present himself to the nation of Israel as that king. He's in essence saying, here I am. He begins uh, his, his ministry of teaching and of uh, working miracles. John chapter 2, he goes up to Jerusalem. And, and in this same setting, on this very same trip to Jerusalem, that's where this conversation takes place between he and Nicodemus. Uh, and in the course of their conversation, Jesus is going to say to Nicodemus, Hey, Nicodemus, here's how you enter the kingdom. And by the way, you're not in the kingdom. And that would have been absolutely shocking to Nicodemus because at that point in time, Jews believed that if you were a Jew, you were in the kingdom. Unless you did some major, uh, major extreme sin, or unless you abandoned the Jewish, Jewish faith, you were going to be a part of the kingdom of God if you were a Jew. So when Jesus comes and tells Nicodemus, no, you're not a part. You are outside of the kingdom. Even though you've done all of these things, even though you are the leader of leaders and the teacher of Israel, you must be born again. Because to enter into God's kingdom, you have to be born again, born from above. And this idea of entering into the kingdom of God is synonymous with receiving eternal life because God's kingdom is an eternal kingdom. And to be in his kingdom is to experience the blessing and the the presence of God for eternity. Now, that's what really is being discussed here, how to enter the kingdom of God, how to obtain eternal life. And Jesus saying to Nicodemus and his disciples, who would have assumed that they're in, that they were not in, would have been absolutely to take the rug out from underneath their feet. But he doesn't just say you're not in. He also shows them and tells them what it takes to get into the kingdom that they are not in. And we've looked at all the details of this conversation in weeks past, but here I wanted to kind of summarize these these two criteria that Jesus gives to Nicodemus and his disciples. For entering into the kingdom of God. Two criteria for obtaining eternal life. See, John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then this is expanded in verse 5 when when Jesus says, "You, You must be born of water and spirit. And that's what it means to be born again. And we talked about that that word for again is really a play on words. It has a double meaning. Uh, It means you must be born again, but it also means the idea of you must be born from above. Uh, You must be born supernaturally by God if you want to enter into the kingdom. But then if you look at verse 15, look at verse 14. In answering the the question that that Nicodemus poses in verse 9, how can these things be? Jesus responds, he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And this is where the the tension arises, and this is where we see that the tightrope is is strung out before us that we have to walk across. Because how how do these two truths, these two exhortations, how do they function together? See, how can it be that the first criteria that is given to Nicodemus, Jesus in essence is saying it is impossible for you to save yourself, Nicodemus. You have all of these works, you have all of these uh these good things that you can point to, all of this wisdom of and knowledge of God's word, and yet you're outside of the kingdom. So on the one hand, Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. God has to save you if you're going to enter into the kingdom. But then at the end of this conversation, Jesus seems to imply that Nicodemus needs to do something. He's called to believe. So, so which one is it? Or, or if it's both, how do they relate to one another? Right? That's, that's a good question to ask. And I'm sure Nicodemus is trying to, to puzzle this all out in his own mind. Because again, the first criteria seems to say you can't save yourself. God has to save you. And then the second criteria says whoever believes will be saved. So how do these coexist? Does the sinner believe in Christ for salvation and then as a result of his faith receive the new birth? Is that what takes place? Or is the sinner uh, receive the new birth and as a result of that birth 
taking place from God, do they turn to Christ in faith at that point in time? How do these relate to one another? Which one comes first? Does regeneration lead to saving faith or does saving faith lead to regeneration? How are we supposed to make sense of all that Jesus has said to Nicodemus? Because this topic is of the utmost importance. This is speaking of how we enter into the kingdom of God. How do we have eternal life? And if we want to to learn how to walk this tightrope that is presented with us here, we we really just have to study this passage because this is one of the, the most clear passages in all of Scripture regarding the relationship of the new birth. And I, when I say the new birth, uh, when I say regeneration, I'm referring to the same thing. Okay? Uh, how does regeneration relate to faith? That is really the question here. And what Jesus spoke to Nicodemus nearly 2,000 years ago, is God is still saying to us today. That's why we need to, to focus in and hear what God has written here because it still applies to us today. How Nicodemus was called to hold these two truths in tension, we have to hold these truths in tension as well. But look with me. I, I know I picked out a couple verses and pointed to, but let's read this conversation together, starting in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again... He cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So what I want to look at this morning are these these two requirements. The requirement of regeneration that must take place, and then secondly, the requirement of faith. How do these relate to one another? Well, let's look first at This requirement of regeneration, besides being absolutely necessary for salvation, which is really the force of what Jesus says to Nicodemus, this is absolutely necessary. What does this passage tell us about regeneration? What I would propose to you would be three three observations. Number one, that regeneration is supernatural. Regeneration is supernatural. The new birth is a supernatural act of God. It's not a result of anything that we do. It's an act of God. That's the idea of being born from above. One uh, theologian has defined regeneration in this way. He says, Regeneration is the sovereign act of God by the Holy Spirit and through the preached gospel, whereby He instantaneously imparts spiritual life to a sinner, bringing him out of spiritual death and into spiritual life. So the new birth is not something that uh, we do. It is something that happens to us. And this is illustrated in multiple ways in Scripture. It's illustrated here just as Jesus points to physical birth. He uses the, the picture of birth 
to show us that this is something that's outside of our control because we didn't have anything to do with our earthly physical birth. We don't have uh, anything to, to determine or factor into our second birth, the new birth. Uh, None of us decided who our parents would be or where and when we would be born. And it is the same way with the new birth. It is an act of God. That is one of the ways that this is illustrated. But but turn with me over just over to to John chapter 11. We'll we'll see this in a very visible and tangible way when we get to this passage. But I I would point to it as an illustration of what takes place in the new birth. It is a supernatural act of God. John chapter 11. One of Jesus' associates has passed away. One of his friends. A man named Lazarus. Uh, and, and Jesus hears of Lazarus dying. And then he waits to go and visit. And so Lazarus has, Lazarus has been dead for several days when Jesus comes and, and he speaks with Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus. And they're heartbroken. Jesus, if you had only been here, he wouldn't have died. But Jesus comes exactly when he was supposed to come. And Lazarus, having been dead and buried, and they say, Lord, don't open the, the tomb. It's going gonna, it's gonna to smell. And that's what is said. But look at me. Verse 43. When he said these things, he, speaking, saying, speaking of Jesus, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. See, kids, there's, there's mummies in the Bible. So if you want a, want a mummy story, go there. But, but, but we must notice what takes place here. Lazarus was dead until Jesus comes and says, Lazarus, come out. Come forth. That is what God does at regeneration. He says, hey, that, that spiritually dead sinner, that spiritually dead lifeless corpse, I'm going to impart spiritual life to you. As an illustration of the new birth. Turn with me over to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is a passage that I'll, I'll point back to on several occasions this morning, so it is good to, to put it in our minds. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, look with me beginning in verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. See, Paul's speaking about his ministry as an apostle to proclaim the word. He says, I don't use uh, crafty techniques to try and manipulate people. I just speak the truth. I speak the word of God and I leave the results up to him. And then in verse 3, he begins to, to speak about the condition of those who have not believed, the condition, our natural state as sinful individuals. He says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, speaking of Satan, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Paul uses this picture of sinners being spiritually blind. We are not able to see. But then here's the picture of what takes place at regeneration. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. Now, the illustration that Paul uses is going back to creation. In in Genesis 1 and 2, or Genesis 1, God said, let there be Light. And what was there? Light. God brought light into darkness. And Paul is using that as an illustration of what takes place. In regeneration, God takes those who are spiritually blind and gives them spiritual eyesight. We now behold the light that is Christ. Christ. 
That is another picture of this act of regeneration. In, in weeks previously, we've also looked at uh, Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36 and 37, where uh, Ezekiel speaks of receiving a new heart, that God takes out a heart of stone and, and puts in a heart of flesh. Another picture of what takes place in regeneration. We also looked at, at Titus chapter 3, of, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, uh, we receive eternal life, not by deeds which we have done in righteousness. All of these are pictures of what takes place with the new birth. And all of these are, are supernatural ways. These are natural ways of describing the supernatural. Now, the new birth, first and foremost, is an act of God. Second observation we can make, if we go back over to, to John chapter 3, is that regeneration is mysterious. Okay? Regeneration is mysterious. It's supernatural and it is mysterious. And because it is supernatural, it is therefore also mysterious. Because it, it's beyond our ability and it's beyond our control, there's a little bit of mystery to it. We don't like, quite know everything that happens or how it takes place or when it takes place because it's invisible. That's what Jesus says. He compares it to the wind. He says, hey, John chapter 3, verse 8, as we read, The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. There is mystery bound up in regeneration because we can't see it. We don't know when it takes place or, or how exactly it all happens. So there's always a bit of mystery to it because we are finite, because we can't behold and see what is taking place. But because there's a little bit of mystery involved, that means that we have to allow for mystery. And sometimes we don't like that. Now, we like mysteries. But we like mysteries to be solved. You ever go to a mystery, uh, movie and, and uh, you know, it's a mystery thriller and at the end there's still a mystery? That, you're like, well, no, I want satisfaction. That's not, that's not helping me in any way. We like mysteries, but we want explanations to those mysteries. We don't like for things to stay mysterious. But mysteries in life are inescapable. Now, some of you might have heard uh, this week there was a big hubbub in the scientific community because uh, the first photos of a black hole uh, were, were taken by a system of uh, satellites orbiting the Earth. And so we now have photographic evidence uh, that would prove this, this theory of a black hole. See, for about 100 years, ever since Einstein's theory of, of relativity, black holes have been hypothesized, but they haven't been proven. Like, hey, we think that they're out there, uh, but now we have actual photographic evidence. And, and you may be thinking, well, that's, that's a, a mystery being revealed. That's not an example of mystery continuing. That's a mystery explained. And you say, well, hold on one second. See, now we have photographic evidence that a black hole exists, but there's still so much mystery left. We don't even know how they function, how they form, what happens. There's a big discussion on what would happen if you get sucked into a black hole. I know there's a lot of movies out there that have uh, ideas of that, but, they, but we don't know. So, so we've identified that black holes exist, but there's still so much more mystery. And in addition to that, the theory of quantum physics, which is the, the study of... Uh, of energy in atomic and subatomic particles. Quantum energy, the theory of quantum mechanics. Uh, there's another theory called the theory of gravity. You may have heard it. Uh, these, these two theories have been, have been demonstrated, and, and it, scientists see that both of these theories are needed for the universe to be explained and understood. But if you look at the theories themselves, they contradict one another. So, so there's tension even within these, uh, the scientific community about how do these things mesh? How do they go together? So that even as mysteries are, are being unveiled and understood, it just pulls back even more mystery. There are so many mysteries to the cosmos, the, to the universe. There's mysteries to your own body. We even understand how the human body works. We wish that modern medicine would have all of the answers, but I know so many of us go to the doctor, hey, doctor, can you help me figure this out? We're like, no, I don't know. There's still so much that remains a mystery. And we have to allow for mystery 
to exist a little bit in our theology, in our understanding of how God works, because that's what Jesus says here. That regeneration is mysterious because it is supernatural and because it is invisible. But we are called to, to exercise faith. We are called to, to allow for mystery. We see that here. We see it uh, in Romans chapter 11, verse 33, when, when Paul has been speaking about uh, the, the, the grand picture of God's redemption and God's salvation. Uh, what he says, he closes out this uh, section of Romans uh, chapter 9 through 11, speaking of God's plan for Israel. And he, he just concludes with this. He says, oh, the, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. He says, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. As we were reading in Proverbs last uh, month in our, our growth groups, there was a, a verse that stood out to me. Proverbs 25, 2. It says, it is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. Sometimes God creates mystery for us, so we have to go investigate. So we have to, to spend time figuring things out and, and looking to Him for answers to those mysteries. Famous verse, Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. And that's spoken in the context of, yeah, God speaking of salvation and then how Israel was going to wander from him and then be redeemed later. And the Israelites are kind of like, well, how does all that work? And Moses' response is, well, there's some mystery to it. That the secret things belong to the Lord. He's going to work all of that out. But what can we know for sure? What has been written? Because what has been written has been written so that we would understand it that we could comprehend and know those things have been revealed to us and they belong to us. So we have to have a little bit of mystery in our theology. But when I say that, what I don't mean is that we can't know anything definitively. That's, that's another part of the, the tightrope that we can fall off of. You can say, well, there's mystery in everything. We can't understand any of it. Well, that's, that's another fallacy. God has written to us in a book because we could understand it. God is able to, to communicate clearly and concisely to us through his word. So I'm not saying that we can't understand anything. Matter of fact, I'm saying just the opposite. That we should study and seek to know God because we can understand it. But we need to allow for some mystery to exist in our theology. So what we see in this big conversation is that the new birth, regeneration, is supernatural and it is mysterious. But also, here's, here's the practical and the hopeful and the encouraging part, that regeneration is transformational. And so even though this new birth, you can't see it actually taking place, you can see the results of it. Just like you can't see the wind, but you can see the results of the wind. You can see the wind impacting physical things around us. And there are results of regeneration that can be seen. Second Corinthians 5.17 says that we are a new creation in Christ. Behold, all things have passed away. New things have come. The old things have been done away with. We are now a new creation in Christ. And that's encouraging to us. That should bring joy and comfort to our hearts and souls because before we knew Christ, what was our condition? We were spiritually dead. We were like Lazarus. Spiritually lifeless. Scripture will also say that that sin had tainted our entire being. And we were completely unable to turn to God. We, Ephesians 4 says that we were darkened in our understanding. Meaning our, our thinking was wrong. Our affections were disordered. We loved sin and hated God. And we'll see this just if you, if you look over at John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. And we'll see that our affections were disordered before we knew Christ. It says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. See, that explains. What's our, what's our heart naturally directed towards before we know Christ? Sin. 
We, we run from Him and we love darkness because we don't want to be exposed. We'll look at that more in, in coming weeks, but it shows that our affections were disordered. Every part of our being was captive to sin. Our mind, our heart, our, our thinking, our evaluation of things. And so when we, when we understand and are deeply humbled by how sinful we were, but here's the good news, that when we are regenerated, every part of us is regenerated. Every part of us is made new. Our thinking, our, our heart, our, our eyesight, everything that was once tainted by sin is now made new in the power of the Spirit of God. Sinclair Ferguson, a pastor, a professor and theologian, writes this about the the transformation that takes place at regeneration. He says, It is as all-pervasive as our depravity. That while the regenerate individual is not yet as holy as he or she might be, there is no part of the life which remains uninfluenced by this renewing and cleansing work. Again, God doesn't just come in and, and begin to tinker with our souls. You just need a couple of, of tune-ups. It's a, it's a complete overhaul of our entire being. That's what takes place at regeneration. And that should give us hope. That should give us encouragement to fight the battle against sin. That gives us hope and encouragement that change can take place if we place our faith and trust in Christ. And if we don't do that, change can't take place because we're still functioning as we once were, as the spiritually dead. We need Christ to give us life. We need the Spirit to work in our hearts to give us the new birth. And when that takes place, every part of our being is now regenerate. We're not perfect, but there's hope for transformation. See, regeneration, supernatural, mysterious, and transformational, that is what Jesus presents to Nicodemus. See, this is the first requirement. Nicodemus, don't rely upon your works. Don't rely upon anything that you have done in Judaism. All of that is... Just take it and throw it away. It's of no value to you. You have to be born again. You have to be born from above. That's the first requirement that Jesus gives to Nicodemus. And the first part of the conversation emphasizes that to the nth degree. And we've walked through all of that. But then at the the tail end of the conversation, how Jesus closes the conversation, again, he points Nicodemus to believe. He says all of these things of, hey, you can't do it. You can't save yourself. It's impossible. God has to do it. But then he says, you need to look to Christ. You need to look to the Son of Man in faith. And that's where the, the second requirement is introduced to us. The requirement of faith. And I would offer you know, just two observations here. Not so much from this exact text, but from what we see in Scripture about the nature of Faith and how it relates to regeneration. We've seen the requirement of regeneration. Now we see the requirement of faith. And first, I would say this, that, that faith is the logical result of regeneration. I want to explain what that means. Faith is the logical result of regeneration. And I want to show you that. I want to make three arguments to you. Number one would be first look at just the order that Jesus presents things to Nicodemus here. Right? If there's these two requirements, you must be born again and you must look to Christ in faith. Which one does, does Jesus put forward first? Regeneration. You must be born again. He could have said, Nicodemus, all of your works are like filthy rags and you just need to rely upon faith. He could have said that at the very beginning, could he not? That if you want to enter the kingdom of God, it must be through faith. But Jesus didn't say that. He said, you must be born Again, you must be born of water and spirit. So I think there's an emphasis on regeneration first. Secondly, uh, on another note, from this same author, if you turn over to to 1 John, at the end of your your Bibles, towards the back, 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. It's an amazing statement that that John is going to write here. And it's going to be grammatically significant. First John 5, 1 John 5.1 says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. Uh, and 
How many of you would consider yourself a grammar Nazi? Have you ever heard of that term? You're like, you correct other people's uh, grammar and punctuation and different things. But, uh, so you'll, you'll appreciate this. But, but the grammar here makes it clear that, that those who have believed, who are currently believing, something has taken place prior to that, and that they have been born of God. The way, the way it all works together, it's very specific in the Greek to show that something takes place prior to something else. And that we, those who have been born, they were born before they are currently believing. And so it's an intentional structure there. So I would point to that. There's other instances without getting into a whole bunch of Greek grammar in a lot of different places. But you begin to see that over and over again in Scripture on the nuances of what is taught. But then third, and I think most compellingly, is that, that the complete transformation that is brought about through regeneration will naturally result in faith. Okay? That when we are completely transformed, we will naturally respond in faith. And let me, let me explain what I mean by that. When we are transformed, the first and the greatest of those transformations is the blessing of spiritual sight. The blessing of spiritual sight. What do I mean by that? Well, just think about how important your eyes are to you. If, If you have your eyesight currently, how much money, how much would it take for you to sell your eyesight? Right? Or if you were blind, how much would you be willing to pay to gain your sight. So just think about that. How valuable is your eyesight? One theologian has said this, the essence of spiritual death is spiritual blindness. To not be able to see things as they truly are. You are spiritually blind. You can't look around and see what really is. That is the essence of spiritual death. If sin has blinded you, you're not able to see the things that are valuable. You're not able to, to evaluate whether or not something is dangerous to you. And if you can't rightly evaluate that, you are in grave, grave peril. Turn over with me to, to Matthew chapter 6. I know we, we looked at that briefly in our financial uh, stewardship class this morning in our equipping hour. And... There's such a, such a poignant example of this that, that Jesus, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, gives. Jesus, the master teacher, always using illustrations. Look at, look at me at verses 22 and 23 in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says, The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be, what? Full of Light, But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? That, that concept of understanding of how we see things will determine everything. And if we are spiritually blind, we cannot see things as they are. And we, we misvalue things. Right? He says, if... If your eye is healthy, the, the full benefit, if, you, if you're seeing things rightly, it's going to benefit your entire being. But if you're not seeing things rightly, it says you're in the darkness. And that's the emphasis. And you are going to continue in that darkness. Those of you who wear glasses, you know the value of eyesight. Like, I've got to have my glasses. Everything gets blurry. And that is what we, we see, the value of, those, of our sight, the value of our glasses. We need Christ to help us to see things clearly. See an example of this here, that that's going to determine everything. And then going back to what we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where, where Paul used that example of God giving light to those who are blind. So let's think about that for a minute. And when we gain spiritual sight, we are finally able to see things as they truly are. Uh, John MacArthur writes about that passage and God imparting light to the spiritually blind. He says, God shines the light of life into the blind heart. He gives us new spiritual eyes so that we can finally see sin for what it is in all its objective ugliness. 
and so finally see Christ for who he is in all his objective beauty and glory. And when sinners finally have functional spiritual eyes and the light necessary to see things as they actually are, they turn away in disgust from the filth of sin and eagerly embrace the Christ whose glory they can at last see. So when we are spiritually blind, we think sin is glorious and God is scary. We need to run from we need to run to sin and run away from God. That's what we think when we are spiritually blind. But then when God gives us the new birth, when we begin to see things truly, we begin to see sin for all of its ugliness and all of its despicableness. And then we begin to see the beauty and glory of Christ. Say, I want that so much more than I want sin. So faith is the result the logical result of regeneration. But it is important to note what I'm saying here, that I'm qualifying that. That faith is the logical result of regeneration, not a chronological result of regeneration. Regeneration and faith take place simultaneously. Okay? It's not that you're regenerate you know, at some point in the past and then days and weeks later uh, you are you, you, you respond in faith. No, they take place at the same time. But then you might ask, how is it possible for events to take place simultaneously, but one of them is the cause of the other? Right? You may be scratching your head about that. But again, I would, I would point back to you that, that picture of eyesight. Okay? For us to be able to see things, our eyes have to be open. And once our eyes are open, then we can perceive light. And again, thinking of that picture of what takes place at regeneration, God gives us eyesight. He opens our blind eyes. And when God opens our eyes, instantaneously, what do our eyes perceive? Light. Those two things happen at the same time. You open your eyes and you perceive light. But logically, one of them is the cause of the other. Because if your eyes don't open, what doesn't happen? You never see the light. You never perceive the light. So your eyes must be open. That is the cause. Regeneration is the cause. And faith is the result. But they occur simultaneously. So it is that we must understand with regeneration and faith. And because regeneration will result in faith... And regeneration is a transformation of our entire being. I would also propose this to you, a second observation about, about faith. That faith encompasses the whole person, just like regeneration does. Faith encompasses the whole person, just like regeneration. And I would argue this, that if regeneration transforms every single part of you, and first and foremost, your eyesight that you now see things truly and clearly, and you are able to rightly value sin, and you are able to rightly value Christ, we are naturally going to look at Christ and say, I want that. I want Him. If we have been made new, if we have been regenerate, that it will be the result. You can say that faith is a whole-souled act of loving, trust, and self-commitment. The theologian John Murray said that faith is a whole-souled act of loving, trust, and self-commitment. And traditionally, there are three components of faith. Say, so what what is faith? Let's say, faith number one is knowledge. That true faith is always based upon what we know, an understanding of facts. In order to believe in Christ. You have to know facts about who he is. You have to understand the gospel message. You have to understand the holiness of God. You have to understand the sinfulness and the helplessness of your state before that holy God. And then you have to know who Jesus is and what he has done. You can't, you can't believe what you don't know. It's impossible. Faith begins with knowledge. But even as I said, faith is always rational. We're not supposed to, to check your brains at the door to the church. Just, just leave your brains outside and just accept everything here based upon faith. No, it, we are called to, to think. God made us thinking beings. But we also have to leave room for that mystery that I mentioned earlier. 
Number one, the first component of faith is knowledge. The second component of faith would be something called assent or the idea of conviction. It's knowing the facts. Uh, knowing the facts is, is not the same thing as believing the facts. Right? You, you can't just say, well, I can, I can know something to be true, but I don't necessarily entrust or have the conviction that I need to build my life upon that. You, that assent or conviction is knowing that the truth, the knowledge that you have, that it is true. Even if you can't put your hands on it, even if you can't actually see it, you have this inner conviction that this is true. And faith requires that we know the truth and that we also embrace the truth as being true. Okay, we have to understand it with our minds, we have to understand it with our hearts and embrace it. And the third component of trust would be this. This is the culmination that knowledge informs our minds and then our hearts give assent to that information that it is true. But finally, our wills get involved. That we finally say, I believe this to be true. I understand it. I believe it. And now I'm going to trust in it. And that trust is going to be demonstrated by actions. That is what is required. Faith will ultimately make a choice based upon what it knows and what it is convinced of. Okay? Look with me at Mark chapter 10. I know we're bouncing around quite a bit. Mark chapter 10, verse 46, tells the story of a blind man named Bartimaeus. And what we're going to see is that Bartimaeus has come to a conclusion. He's come to the conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the son of David. And he believes that because Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is able to heal him. And he has this knowledge and he has this conviction. And now he's going to trust in it. He's going to act upon it. And nothing is going to stop him. Look with me, Mark chapter 10, verse 46. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. That's what true faith looks like. That's knowledge, assent, and trust. There was nothing going to hold Bartimaeus back. He was absolutely convinced that Jesus could save him and he was going to act upon that. But there are others who stop short of acting. They may be convinced intellectually, they may believe something in their heart, but they don't act. We see that in James chapter 2, verse 19, where James says that, that the demons believe. They tremble and believe, but they don't, they don't turn to God. They don't, they don't have that component of trust. They don't begin to act upon what they know. And so it is at times with us. But true faith, you know, I have a, have a slide up here. Long definition. I know it's sometimes difficult to, to write down a long definition or to follow along with it. But this is a phenomenal definition of how all of these work together. John Murray's theologian from his book, uh, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, says this. He says, faith is knowledge passing into conviction. And it is conviction passing into confidence. That faith cannot stop short of self-commitment to Christ. A transfer, transference of reliance upon ourselves and all human resources to reliance upon Christ alone for salvation. 
It is a receiving and a resting upon him. That is what true faith is. A receiving and a resting upon Jesus. You're, you're, you're transferring your dependence. Rather than being dependent upon yourself or upon anything else in this life, you are transferring your dependence upon Christ with all of your being. Our faith should be rooted and built upon facts. God doesn't call us to be blind. We have to walk this this tightrope of seeking to understand. But there's also a danger here of, of employing our minds to the point where they become the final authority and evaluator of truth. Now that's that tightrope and that tension. Okay? We can easily say, well, everything has to, to make sense and everything has to be held up to my reason. And sometimes people will say, I will not believe because I don't understand something. And that sounds very noble, doesn't it? I just want to understand it first. It's like, yes, that, that sounds noble, but it, let's say it, it's really just a smokescreen. So how so? Well, that, that's not a livable standard. To, to say, I have to completely understand something before I will believe it. Okay? How many of you use electricity? Yeah, right? How many of you understand how electricity works? Okay, there's a couple of electricians here. Like, yeah. Okay? So you, you use something, you believe in it, even though you can't understand it. Right? Again, that's why this is not a livable system. If, if, believing and under, if understanding something was required before using it or believing it, you wouldn't use anything. How many of you understand your smartphones or how the Internet works or how your car works? Right? We would all be curled up in the fetal position if we tried to live according to this standard. Right? We, we couldn't do anything. That's not, a, that's not a livable system. It's ultimately wrong because you're elevating your reason above God's Word. That's, in this conversation with Nicodemus, in John 3, Jesus condemns him. Nicodemus says, how can these things be? And Jesus says, I'm not certain that I should really tell you because I've, I've spoken these things to you and you haven't believed anything that I've said. You haven't believed my testimony. You haven't believed my word. So why should I give you more information just so you can reject it? But he continues to explain to Nicodemus. And that's where we see what we are ultimately called to, to know, what we are called to give assent to, and what we are called to then trust in total. We see that in this conversation with Nicodemus. We see that we are called to trust in the word of Christ. Again, he condemned Nicodemus for not believing his testimony. And then ultimately at the end, he points Nicodemus to the work of Christ. As the Son of Man is going to be lifted up, you must believe in him. And whoever believes in him shall receive eternal life. We have to understand we have to exercise faith and trust that true faith, true seeing and evaluating things rightly, is the result of faith. It's not the prerequisite to it. As I've said before, what we see in the Gospel of John, Jesus doesn't make sense to those who don't believe in him. He only makes sense once you have believed and, and looked to him in faith. And that is what we are called to do. That is what we are commanded to do. That whoever believes would have eternal life. As we, as we put all of this together, we see that, that regeneration is supernatural. We see that it's mysterious. We see that it's transformational. And that the first transformation it brings is a transformation of our, of our eyesight. It gives sight to the spiritually blind. And because of that, we will believe. That is a, a logical result of our regeneration. So oftentimes people will ask, how do I know if I have been born again? And the answer would, I would propose is that you have believed, right? But then you may say, well, how do I know if I've believed, right? And you're like, okay, we can, we can play this game. Uh, but it's a good question. Do I have genuine faith? And I would, I would point you to those three components of faith. Do you know and understand the gospel? 
Do you know and understand the holiness of God? Do you know and understand your sinfulness before that holy God? Do you know who Jesus is and what he has done on your behalf? Then if you know those things, do you have an internal conviction that they are true? Do you believe them? Not just mentally, I can give you that answer. I could write it on a piece of paper. But do you believe that in your being? Even though you can't necessarily put your hands on it or see Christ crucified, you can't necessarily see your sins being placed upon Jesus on the cross, but do you have the conviction that it is true, that that has taken place? Are you in agreement with them? Have you yielded to them as being true? So if you know the gospel and if you have given assent to its truth in your heart, the last component you should ask yourself about is have you exercised your will have you trusted in christ have you you know those things you trust in those things now have you acted upon them have you placed all of your trust in jesus rather than in yourself would say this that faith is all of you believing in all of christ and is that true of you and if it is true of you then you know you have been born again that you have truly believed in christ but again, sometimes there's frustration because we feel like we're not at that point. We want to be there, but we don't necessarily feel like we are there. And we have doubts and we have questions. I love a story about uh, D.L. Moody. One time he's, he's preaching in the city of Philadelphia and uh, this young woman's eyes in the audience, she's just staring at him the whole time, taking in every word that he says. And so after the message, he goes up and, and speaks with her and he asks, are you a Christian? And she answered, no, I, I wish I was. I've been seeking Jesus for three years. He says that there must be some mistake. And she looked at him strangely and said, well, well, don't you believe me? And Moody answered her, well, no doubt you thought you were seeking Jesus, but it does not take an anxious sinner three years to meet a willing Savior. So the young lady asked, well, what should I do then? And Moody responded, well, the matter is you are trying to do something. You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And she said, okay, I'm sick and tired of the word believe. Believe, believe, believe. I don't know what that is. Well, he said, we'll change the word. Let's say trust. And so she asked, okay, if, if I say I'll trust him, will he save me? And Moody re responds, he says, no. I don't say that. You may say a thousand things, but he will save you if you trust him. She said, well, I do trust him, but I don't feel any better. I love Moody's response. He says, ah, I've got it now. You've been looking for feelings for three years rather than looking for Jesus. And so often we can get wrapped up in trying to feel as if we are saved rather than truly taking account of what do I know? Am I convinced of that? Not just an intellectual knowledge and understanding of something, but am I convinced that this is true? And then have I placed all of my trust in that? That is what we are called to do. We're not supposed to to search out emotions. We're not supposed to search out a feeling. We are to rely upon what we know, what we are convinced of, and then to trust in the word and work of Jesus. And, and may that give encouragement to you, those of you who are out here wondering whether or not or where you stand with Christ. Am I born again? Do I have faith? I would say look to those things. Look to Scripture, don't trust your feelings, because your feelings will always change. But look to the word of Christ. Because if he gives you spiritual new birth, if he regenerates you, the results will be faith and a transformation of your entire being. And that gives us hope and that gives us eyes to see rather than spiritual blindness. And may we begin not to search for emotions, but to search for a person. That person is Jesus. May we look to him in faith every morning, every night, today and from this day forward. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, 
Almighty God. Abba, Father, we come to You rejoicing in the truth of Your Word, rejoicing in the salvation that You have brought about in our hearts. God, we thank You for giving us a new heart, transforming us so that we would respond in faith. And that's what You are calling us to do, to look to Your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, may we see Him and behold Him for who He is in all of His glory and all of His beauty. And may we see and behold sin and all of its ugliness. May we grow evermore in love with You and may we then follow You. May we trust in Christ and follow Him as His disciples. Not merely giving words, not merely saying things, but exercising trust. Lord, may this word encourage our hearts and build us up, and may it glorify and exalt you as we now sing to you, echoing back to you who you are and what you have done. Lord, we know those things and we trust in those things, and now we wish to echo that trust and worship back to you. So we pray that this would be honoring and glorifying to you and edifying to us. In Jesus' name. Amen.